My name is Mark McKenna. I'm one of the founders of Down to Earth. So we've been running for about 15 years and this actually is one of the first buildings we started. And the idea of Down to Earth was to look how making buildings like this with natural materials, being outdoors, can help people work through either mental or physical health problems as well as helping to give them a different educational experience. So it's been going, like I say, for about 15 years and we've gone from this site to multiple other sites now across South Wales. We're on the Gower Peninsula, which is a beautiful part of Wales. It's an area of outstanding natural beauty. And this field, when we started here 15 years ago, was a very overgrown field with a few horses grazing on it. And every single thing you see on the site has been built by the groups who've come here from scratch. And over the 15 years, it's developed to where it's at right now. But it's been, um, yeah, incremental, um, experimental growth. So this building was one of the first buildings, like I say. We don't really build like this anymore, but this building has helped us develop our way of work. This is a cob building, and cob is the British traditional way of building with earth. So one of the reasons we called the organisation Down to Earth is because we built a lot with earthen materials, particularly at the beginning. Now we do a little bit of earth building, mainly with clay plasters, um, but because we're doing house building and quite mainstream infrastructure now, um, earthen building isn't quite so suitable for that. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of earthen materials, as you can see, they're very sculptural um, and that it's literally building with your hands and you can create fantastic materials exclusively. So all this building is made out of the earth from under our feet. It's a remarkable way of building. The way we're building right now is, um, isn't very mindful of future impact. What infrastructure do we want to leave behind for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to inherit? We don't tend to build with that headspace. If we were going to build houses, hospitals, schools, mindful of future generations, I think we'd build very, very differently. Um, so we try to build houses or, or any of that infrastructure with a future lens. So I think we need to shift away from and the immediacy of what serves the purposes of here and now. Maybe, if we're lucky, we might get a design life of 20 years in buildings, which just isn't sufficient. Um, I think we also tend to build and we tend to have still a very sectorally siloed way of thinking. We, we might build hospitals, say, not thinking about the health impact of the, the actual fabric of the building that people are receiving their treatment in. Educationally, we might be building schools that are not mindful of how the fabric of the building, the architecture of the building forms their learning experience. Um, we're not mindful of how the, the performance CO2 levels, heating levels, VOC levels, lots of technical stuff, how that informs the experience of people that are in schools or hospitals or houses. So we need to shift away from this sort of very siloed way of thinking into something that's much more holistic, which looks at what's good for people and what's good for nature, both now and in the long term. And if we can reframe and think in that way, then we'd be building very, very differently than we are right now. I think down to us growing quite organically. So we've been quite careful to 
to build our model on an evidence base and to show it works and then scale and increase the, the layer or the level of ambition. So we started with quite a humble building like this. Now we're building six houses and those six houses are, are not very far away. They're only maybe 15 minute drive away. And it's the exact same model. So working with young people and adults from quite vulnerable backgrounds and using house building, again, just with Welsh and natural materials. So taking this model we see behind us, but more into a mainstream contemporary application. So building with Welsh timber, fully natural materials, and the process of building those houses delivers health and educational outcomes for those individuals. So if you can do it with six social houses, then you can do it with 60 social houses, 600, 6,000. You can scale the approach and you can transform what housing we have in Wales whilst also changing the lives of the people involved in building them. So it's a very holistic way of, of looking at what our future infrastructure could look like. So, and I guess we're also interested in the home occupiers. So there's, there's different layers to this approach. So you can change the lives of people engaged in building those houses and you can look at how that impacts whales and biodiversity and the natural environment more generally. But then also you can look at it through the lens of the people who occupy the houses afterwards. So what does it feel like? What's the health impact for people who live in houses that are fully breathable or vapor permeable? Houses that regulate humidity, houses that have natural light, have natural ventilation, houses that are built around that hot thing in the sky as we've got it today that moves around. Solar-centered housing, that is inherently just heated and, and lit by the sun. How does that inform the home occupier's experience? How does it inform their fuel bills? What can they do with that disposable income which they're not spending on keeping themselves warm? What do we do you know, with housing that right now? So there's been a recent piece of research done in Carmarthenshire that says about 40% of hospital admissions are due to poor housing stock. So we've got houses that are literally making people ill. What about houses that actually improve people's health outcomes? So that's looking at a very holistic way of, of what housing could be. And then you can take that model, and you can take it into hospital infrastructure. You can take it into school infrastructure. You can take it into the whole built environment and transform the model that we see development currently taking. We are all impacted by being outdoors and by natural elements. There's lots of, of research on that. So it's inevitable that when we're inside or indoors, that interaction with the outdoors is beneficial. So whether it's fresh air exchange, whether it's natural light coming in, it's a very different experience if you're in a house or a school or a hospital and you get no exposure to the outside elements. If you can't see the outdoors, it's a very different experience for people. There's plenty of research on that, on people's recovery in hospitals. So it's, you know, it's, it's quite obvious that we should be thinking about that type of natural experience as much as possible mm. in, a, in a building. 
and same with the, the, the lining of, of walls, floors, the fabric, the way that feels, the acoustic impact, the humidity regulating impact, the way they consciously or unconsciously, whether aware of it, the, the volatile organic compounds that get emitted in synthetic materials. There's lots of reasons why we should be looking at natural materials. What we'd like to see is the approach, which is pretty much putting people at the center of building or designing or developing their own built and natural environment. So why shouldn't children be involved in the design and build of a school? Why shouldn't the curriculum in part be delivered practically vocationally through children actually either designing, building or looking after their school campus? Why shouldn't hospitals be built or looked after through a rehabilitative approach? So if we can prove that you can get much more effective neurorehabilitation through this approach, then why wouldn't neurorehabilitation on a hospital campus be done through that approach? You can take it and scale it and you can apply that person-centered, nature-centered approach to all infrastructure. And if we did do that and we flipped what the experience was, of people having that built environment. So rather than it being presented to them as, this is your hospital, this is your school, this is your community center, this is your house. If you put the community at the center of developing that, embedding the use of natural materials, looking at houses, infrastructure, that is a net contributor of renewable energy. So a net energy producer and net biodiversity gain, something that is effectively a regenerative approach, then you could transform Wales radically for the improvement of people and nature in, in quite a remarkable way. I, I, don't, I don't think the way we are building is, is, is people-centered at all. And if it were people-centered, then the experience that people have of their houses would be vastly different from how it is right now. And again, at the moment, the current model is your house gets built for you and you go and occupy that house. There's very little engagement in that design and build process. I mean, how many people have had any involvement in building the house they live in? It's, it's virtually nobody. So there is a very different model we could look at which, which transforms people's experience of their home. When we started Down to Earth, we mainly worked with young people. So young people who were either excluded from school or at risk of exclusion, um, young people who were disaffected. Um, so not engaging with the mainstream for a whole range of reasons. Um, and probably for the first five to ten years, that was our dominant um, group base. Now we also work a lot with adults who are from quite a vulnerable background, so a lot of health board groups. So we work a lot with adults who have experienced a brain injury, um, adults who've had a stroke, um, adults who may be from a secure mental health unit, um, young people and adults who are early onset of psychosis. Those are our specialist groups from the health boards. And those groups have been coming to us now, transitioning um, to a point where maybe five years ago, those were the majority of groups we worked with. So our work with the health boards has, has rapidly progressed and that's largely based on the clinical research that we've had undertaken. So we've had three different pieces of clinical research. So we, we very much believe, okay, yes, we need to develop new ways of working. We need to show 
there's new possibilities and stimulate imagination and hope, but that has to be underpinned by an evidence base that is robust. So we've always worked quite closely with universities and the health boards that associate with the universities to have clinical research which proves that, okay, it might look great, it might feel great, and the stories might be great, but actually there's objective, internationally recognised research methods that validate that the approach works. And that's what gives us a platform then to, to scale the change. A lot of the learning is is to listen to people and to, to hear the story and to always take the, the, the message from, from the experience that people have of what they do here and to, to keep that close. Because it's quite easy to, to drift in a different direction. So we've always tried to ensure that the people we work with are at the very center of their experience. So there was, there was nervousness yeah, as we grew that maybe people wouldn't get as much from it. So if we shift from, say, laying a hedge or building a building with earth like this one behind us to let's build a hospital, um, that's, that's a massive shift. And um, within the team, there was definitely concern or nervousness that maybe people would feel remote from their experience. But actually, we found it's the opposite. So the more ambitious the vision, the more people seem to get from it, the more people feel believed in and trusted. And I guess that's been a really important part of our journey is, is to give people more than maybe you might ordinarily feel personally comfortable with. And the experience of the, a lot of the people we work with is one of not being trusted, not being believed in. And as soon as you say to people, this is your house, I trust you to build it, I'm not going to take it down when you go, is very empowering for individuals. So you can apply that way of working across any platform and you can apply it to any form of infrastructure or service development and that belief in people is, is what brings about the change. So I guess, um, yeah, moving forwards, it's, we need to hold hold that close to ourselves and also we need to keep believing in ourselves and keep believing it's possible because there are many many setbacks a lot of people look at down to earth and think you know that that seems to be a pretty successful organization but the, the sheer amount of friction and and setbacks we've had are you know pretty considerable and it's it's been dogged determination that's got us to where we're at and we're not too keen to accept no. So we, we push back and we challenge. And if people don't believe in what we believe in, then we work hard to, to communicate that, which is why we've always gone for an evidence-based and clinical research underpinning the work, because then people believe in it because it's validated by something that is much more objective. Our experience has regularly, even, even to this point now, been one of this isn't possible to mainstream. And there's a, there's a lack of belief and a lack of hope and a lack of imagination. So if we could 
nurture or encourage a little bit more belief and if there's a robust evidence base underpinning an approach then to get to where we need to be requires a leap of faith and requires imagination and I think we need more of that so you know if we sort of roll back 10-20 years and you describe things that we take for granted now like mobile phones and the impact of the internet there are things that maybe we couldn't have imagined back then would have the impact they've got right now. Mm. So we need to embed that way of thinking and to, to be bolder and believe to see this change actually happening. So that requires sometimes maybe um, people in, in influence or people who've got power actually um, taking a punt and seeing, well, maybe it won't work out, but actually maybe it will. And surely what we need to see, if we're gonna shift away from business as usual, we need to be doing things that are radically different to what we're familiar with right now. And if we're not prepared to do that, then we're simply not going to get the change we need to see happening. Mm. I'm sure change will happen, but quite incrementally and really rather slowly and probably not at the speed of change we need to see happening. And as long as you've got the evidence base, which we have in abundance, then why wouldn't you take a punt to scale? My main driver would be a sense of equality or social justice, both in people or society and environmentally. So the two, the two go hand in hand. You can't tackle inequality with people if you don't tackle inequality in the natural environment. Mm. So it's, it's always, yeah, it's quite tragic. You see it across Swansea, Wales, you see it all over the world. You always see the people who are on the edge of society or the most marginalized or the most vulnerable. They're always the ones who have the access to the least green space, the lowest quality of food, you know, air pollution, is always correlated with deprivation. So you can't tackle that inequality in, in people or culture unless you tackle underlying environmental issues. So I guess down to earth and my personal drive comes from trying to dovetail those two elements together. COVID's helped highlight or magnify a lot of these issues so that there is clearly a link between deprivation and people's experience of COVID. So I guess it, it's shown that whether it's air pollution or poor quality housing stock, that there is a direct correlation there. So I think it's highlighting that social inequality goes hand in hand with either the built or natural environment not being the way it should be. So if we can restructure that, if we can look at that holistically and look at how we can create housing and a natural environment that is centered around what nature requires to regenerate, then it's gonna inherently be good for people. There was a degree of risk with the, the complexity of the approach. Um, but I, I don't, I think, I think we've, been, we've been strangely both risk adverse and very risky at the same time. So I think there, there is a way of, of taking risk without overexposing an organization, say, to debt 
or some form of liability. And I think we've managed to walk that, that thin line of trying something new and by definition risky, but we've grown it slowly and built on evidence base, built on learning from our mistakes, built on the practice we've developed. So we haven't started as an organization and gone, we're gonna build six houses tomorrow. The building of six houses is 15 years into an evolution of practice. So I think we've mitigated a lot of the risk by just being relatively um, careful in our risk taking. Our experience in Wales is, is one of um, this excellent vision within the political base as, as you know, groundbreaking legislation. I guess we need to see that trickling through to the key civil servants and decision makers. So not the elected members, not the, the politicians, but the people on the ground who are making those choices on behalf of the electorate through their civil servant position. They need to be held more to account. They need to be pushed to actually embed what the legislation demands so that when it comes to a procurement choice, when it comes to A or B, I take more money or I take something which has longer future generational impact, then the nudge is always to the what has long-term future generational impact, not what gives the best cash receipt today. So that's, if we can get that sort of movement, I think we'll see a lot more change.